0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. And Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for them and then. Paul commended the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to follow as they excelled in faith, in hope, and in love, as they passionately shared the good news of Christ with the many lost souls around them, and then as they turned away from idols and served the Lord from the heart based on their intense love for Him. Here in chapter 2, Paul's been defending himself his ministry, and his motives, and he's done an excellent job of that because he could appeal to what the Thessalonians already knew to be true about Paul and about his friends, for their lives had proved it out. So Paul says, our hearts are clean, our motives are clear, we gave you the truth of God, we served tirelessly, we suffered for the truth, we loved you with fervor, and you saw all of that very clearly, and even more than anything else, God knows, (laughs) There's no denying those things, see. So Paul, shut down the haters with the truth. Now what? Let's look, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffer the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Now, here we see the fact, which is this, that Paul and his friends Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, they thanked God without ceasing. Now, we're going to see the reasons why they thanked God without ceasing in just a second, but the very fact that Paul and his friends thanked God when they thought of the Thessalonian Christians is a very good sign. I mean... It reveals a lot about the church in Thessalonica. See, most of the churches that had been founded by Paul, they broke his heart at some point in time, either with fighting or with unrepentant sin or with being deceived by false teachers and and, and turning to lies or by something else. But the Thessalonian church, while not perfect, they were a great blessing... And they were a great encouragement to Paul and his friends, generally speaking. And they're just like, oh, thank you. We we thank God for you. Paul said that at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 2. Here he says it yet again. And this is clearly something that was at the forefront of their hearts and of their minds. We're so thankful for you. The word thank is in the present tense, which shows us that this was their continual feeling towards the Thessalonian believers. Note also those words without ceasing. The word means constantly, incessantly, and continually. And how good is that? I mean, I'm just always constantly, continually (coughs) giving thanks to God for you. Don't you love that? Continually. Oh, that that would be said of all of us because we give others reasons to be thankful. Let me ask you. When other believers think of you, are they thankful? (laughs) What other believers think of you, are they grateful? Because you can learn a lot about a person by what he or she appreciates. And here, Paul and his team constantly express their gratitude for God's work in the lives of the Christians in Thessalonica. And rather than being a source of grief, these Christians evoked gratitude, and they're a great example for all of us today. So again, the question, do other believers thank God for you? Why would they do that? Because you're a blessing to them, because you're an encourager, because you show people what Christ is like, because you love people and you're greatly loved in return, because you're involved in other people's lives for the good, helping when they are hurting and correcting when when they are erring, because you show others that Christ really does give victory, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ really does give comfort in trial, that Christ really is worthy of giving our all to. What about you? Well, Paul gives three specific reasons why he thanked God for these Thessalonian Christians. Lord, help us to follow their example. First, they welcomed God's Word as His true Word. Verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Why? Because when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul says, we thank God for you. Why? Well, for this reason, he says. Okay, for what reason? This reason. Because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. And that kind of reception of the Word of God will cause any pastor or any missionary to rejoice And to give thanks to God. Why? Because the Word of God just isn't just any old Word, right? It's the Word of God. Now today, the Word of God, the full and complete revelation from God, is contained in one perfect book, the Bible. However, at the time that Paul wrote these words here in 1 Thessalonians, the New Testament was still being written. And while God gave apostles and prophets the ability to speak God's Word of truth to the people at this amazing time, God also used some of those men to write down that Word of God under His divine inspiration, which was then completed with the book of Revelation, which was then compiled and put into one book the bible so the word that the thessalonians heard from the missionaries was god's word and it wasn't their own note that this was very unique to that transitionary time before they had the completed word of god written down but now that we have the completed word of god written down which is truly adequate and which is fully sufficient for us today look Prophets and apostles who speak for God are no longer around because they are no longer needed. Why not? Because we now have everything that we need right here in the written Word of God. This is fully sufficient for everything that we need. So, for the Thessalonians, they had already had the Old Testament Scriptures, and then they had the Word that the apostles and prophets spoke to them, as the New Testament was still being written down for them. But again, for us today, it's all contained in one perfect book, all of it. And look, it's inspired, and it is authoritative for us. Timothy talks about the inspiration of the Word of God in 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That would have included the Old Testament Scriptures, but they also would have included the writings of the apostles that were still being written down at that time. And today, it's talking about the fullness of the Scriptures that consists of both the Old Testament and the New Testament writings, nothing more, nothing less. This is it. The point is this, that both the Old and the New Testaments complete God's written revelation to us, and it's that, the Bible alone, that is inspired of God. All right, you say, what does that mean? Well, the word inspired literally means God-breathed or divinely breathed. That means that the words of the Scriptures are words that come from the mouth of God Himself. That they are the voice of God to the souls of men. When speaking of the Bible, Horatius Bonner wrote, Your thoughts are here, my God, expressed in words divine. The utterance of heavenly lips in every sacred line. And he's right. Now question. How did God do this? Second Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy ever came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God used men of God to write the Word of God. And note that the Spirit didn't erase the natural characteristics of these writers when He did this. In fact, God, in His providence, prepared the writers for the task of writing the Scriptures. So, each writer has his own distinctive style and his own distinctive vocabulary, Peter, Paul, Moses, and so on. And each book of the Bible grew out of a special set of circumstances. And in God's preparation of men, in His guiding of history, and in His working through the Spirit, God brought about the miracle of the Scripture. So in one sense... This is the Word of God, and in one sense, this is the Word of man. I mean, the 66 books of the Bible were written down by real men with their limitations and their own personalities. The Bible didn't fall down from heaven, right? Completely written, leather-bound with maps and concordances in the back. It didn't. Instead, the Bible came together through a process that took place over a thousand years. And the human writers of scripture possessed a wide variety of experience, personality, and character. And the full range of human characteristics is evident in the biblical writings. But note this, while it was written down by man, it was indeed inspired by God. And that truth changes everything. And so, for example, while we can say that Paul wrote these words to the Thessalonians, we know that it was God who inspired it, that that it is God-breathed. That means that What the Bible says, God says. That means that the Bible is the final authority for our lives. As Augustine said, Let us therefore yield ourselves and bow to the authority of the Holy Scriptures, which can neither err nor deceive. And he's absolutely right. So question, Is it the words of the Bible that are inspired, or were the writers inspired? The words of the Scriptures are inspired. And while God moved through the men in an amazing way to say what they said and to write down what they wrote, it's only the Scriptures that are said to be inspired, breathed out by God. So the men weren't inspired, the Scriptures are inspired. Now look, we here believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Inspiration means that the text of Holy Scripture was breathed out by God the Holy Spirit, and then it was written down by men using their own gifts, words, and personal style. Plenary means that inspiration extends to every part of the Bible, telling us that all the words of Scripture are God's words. Verbal means that inspiration extends to the very words of the text, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So God is the ultimate author of the Bible in its entirety. Why do I stress this? Here's why. Because it's under attack today. Look, today there are different views of what this means, of what inspiration means. One view is called natural inspiration. The view holds that there's no supernatural element involved in writing Scripture. That the writers of the Bible were men of unusual religious insight, writing on religious subjects in the same way that men like Shakespeare wrote literature. So the Bible is just some cool book written down by some good, insightful men. That is not what the Bible teaches. Another view of inspiration is called partial inspiration. This view holds that the parts of the Bible related to matters of faith and practice are inspired, but matters that are related to history, science, and chronology may be in error. But here's a question. Who decides which parts of the Bible are in error and which parts are not? Also, how can the Bible be trustworthy in one area but not in another? This view puts man's opinions over what God's Word says, and this view tells us that God is only right some of the time. That is not what the Bible teaches Another view of inspiration is called conceptual inspiration. This view holds that only the concepts or ideas of the writers are inspired, not the words. It's very popular these days. The belief that the Bible contains the Word of God, but still contains the uninspired words of man as well. That view allows us to pick and choose what we like in the Bible and make it pretty much say whatever it is that we want it to say. It also allows us to get away with a whole lot of sin in the process. That is not what the Bible teaches. Another view of inspiration is called the neo-orthodox view that believes that the Bible in written verbal form is not the revealed Word of God. However, it can become the Word of God if it points a person to an encounter with Christ. The problem with that view is that the Bible is indeed the objective, authoritative Word of God, whether a person believes it or not. It does not become the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So this neo-orthodox view is not what the Bible teaches. What then does the Bible teach? Second Samuel seven twenty one, And now, O oh Lord God, you are God and your words are true. Numbers twenty three nine. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Answer yes. Psalm twelve six. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Or like Proverbs thirty verse five. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Or Psalm nineteen seven through ten. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. See, the Bible alone is the inspired word of God. The Bible alone is true And therefore, it is to be our one authority and our one rule for living. Look, God is the creator of all, and He's the source of all that exists. And as a creator, and as a source of all things, God alone defines what is true. And He alone is the ultimate revealer of all truth. He Himself is truth. Christ the Son is the embodiment of truth. And His Word, the Bible, is truth written down because it comes to us from Him. This tells us that ultimate truth is an objective reality. It exists outside of us and it remains the same regardless of how we feel or of how we perceive it. It's fixed, see? It's constant. So, you have your truth and I have mine. That is not correct because truth isn't up to you. And truth isn't up to me. No, God is truth and his word is true because it all comes from him. So, implication, what we think doesn't really matter. What God says is what matters. And if God says it, then it's true. And the wise soul bases his life on the truth as opposed to a lie. The wise soul believes what God says. The wise soul listens to God. The wise soul obeys God. The wise soul's authority comes from the Word of God as opposed to the thoughts and to the opinions of sinful people. Of course. What? I mean, you're going to base your eternal soul on what sinful, marred, skewed people think rather than on what the God who created you says. Really? You're going to base your thoughts about life and morality and eternal issues on what fallen human beings think instead of on what the Lord God Almighty, who is all truth, says? Really? I mean, well, I think this, and I think that, and I hold to this view, and I, I hold to that view. Well, who cares? What does God say? That's the issue. And that's all we should really care about because God's Word is truth, and the opinions of men are just that. Opinions. And look, these Thessalonian Christians knew that the word that they were getting from Paul and his friends weren't just the words of men, no. They were indeed true words, the truth of God, the Word of God, so they welcomed it as that. The word welcome means to readily receive, to welcome as a friend, to grasp, to accept with open arms, open minds, and open hearts. So we find that the Thessalonian Christians Put out the welcome mat for the Word of God as an invited guest. Come in. Come in. So glad you're here. Please come in. It's a great picture. They knew that what they were getting was the true Word of God, and so as it was the true word of god they they welcomed it gladly what does that mean it means that they received it they they believed it they took it in head and and heart they didn't spurn it even though it's sometimes hard they didn't ignore it they didn't rebuff it no they welcomed it because they knew it was the truth and they knew that it was what they needed in a world full of lies it was a treasure to them see it it was honey to them it was necessary food to them and because they loved god so much they then loved his word so much because his word reveals their god to them one said the way a christian treats his bible shows how he regards jesus that's absolutely right because the bible is how we come to know jesus so because the thessalonians loved jesus so much they then loved his book because that's how it works See, Christians love the Word of God because the Word of God points us to God. (laughs) So we love it and we read it and we obey it and we immerse ourselves in it because it's the main means that God uses to bring us closer to Him and to know Him better. What about you? I mean, many say they love it, but they're all talk. They say they love it, but they don't read it very much. That's not love. They say they love it, but they Pass up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to take it in. That's not love. They say they love it, but their Bibles are dusty from underuse. That's not love. If you love Him, this God who created you, this God who died on a cross for you, this God who saved you when it was the last thing that you deserved. I mean, think about it. You deserve hell, but He suffered and died so you, His child, could be with Him forever in eternal glory. Look, if you really love Him, then you will love His Word. And that love will be seen in how you handle that word. Reading it, taking it in, living it out. Welcome. Please come in. Is your love clear? Look what Paul adds at the end of verse 13, which also works effectively in you who believe. How true is that? God's word is effective. Anyone? Don't we know it? The Greek word used here is the word energeo, energy, which speaks of power that produces results, the Word of God. Here, Paul makes it clear that it's God's Word that exerts effective and energetic power in believers undergirded by the Holy Spirit. Look, the Gospel is a power of God for salvation, eternal salvation. Faith, saving faith, comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and then all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction and in righteousness, look, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, the Word is the means of saving us, and the Word is also the means of equipping us for every good and godly work. It's effective, see, and haven't we seen that firsthand? I mean... I've seen God's effective Word be used to save some of you from eternal hell. That is effective. I've seen it. I've seen it change many of you from being overcome in your sin to being true God-pleasers more and more and more. I've seen you respond to the Word of God with passion, where you change sinful things in your life, where you reach out to the unlovable, where you forgive people for wretched wrongs done to you, where you turn the other cheek, where you overcome trial and and tragedy with godly joy, where you trust Him in His sovereignty, even when you don't always understand it. On and on it goes. And it shows us the effective power of the Word of God and how the Spirit works through His effective and powerful Word. And we do well to recognize that and to cherish this amazing gift right here That he's given to us. I mean, people have died to get this book into our hands today. This book that we hold in our hands, people have died to get this book into our hands. This book is a blood-stained book. This book is built on the backs of martyrs who suffered and bled and died to get this book to us today. And we should treat it appropriately. What else reveals God to us? Reveals our true selves to us? Reveals our sin to us? Reveals God's holiness and sovereignty to us? Reveals God's love and mercy to us? Reveals the way of salvation to us? Reveals God's judgments and laws to us? What else? See, God uses His Word to change us and to mold us and to empower us and to revive us and to restore us and to teach us and to enliven us and to encourage us and and so much more. It's a Word that is the food that nourishes us in godliness. It's our drink that sustains us, and our growth, our training, our maturing is based on the Word of God. And just as a baby grows because it eats, you grow because you eat what? The Word of God. And this is what will mold you more and more into that growing, maturing, powerful, overcoming, sin-hating, God-pleasing man or woman of God that you're called to be the effective Word of God. The Thessalonians understood this truth, so they welcomed it as a beloved friend. Lord, help us to do the same. What else did Paul and his friends thank God for when he thought of the Thessalonians this? Second, they became imitators of the churches of God in Judea. Verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. It's very interesting, and the second part of this verse reveals more specifically of what Paul really is talking about but before we get to those specifics I think it's good to generally note that the church in Thessalonica became imitators of the churches of God in Judea even though the knowledge of the churches in Judea would have been very very limited by the Thessalonians. Remember Thessalonica is way way over there in Macedonia in Europe well, Judea was in the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem was located and where the church first began. Judea and Thessalonica were about a thousand miles apart, and yet, look, the Christians in Thessalonica became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea. How is that possible? I mean, they didn't know each other. They didn't FaceTime each other. They didn't have any of the modern conveniences like we have today today. To know how the churches a thousand miles away are doing and, and how they're acting, and how did they then know how to imitate the churches in Judea here's why because of Christ. Gods see, God's children should bear a family resemblance, even if we don't look the same physically and even if we never even have met face to face still. We should bear a family resemblance because we have the same Father and we have the same Savior. The word imitate is from the Greek term mimetes, from which we get the English word mime, which refers to someone who imitates another person, pantomime, and mimeograph, which is a machine that makes copies from a stencil. So the word means to copy, to imitate, and to mimic. Here, we find that the Thessalonians imitated the churches in Judea. Now, I don't think they were trying to be like the churches in Judea because, again, they had so little information about the churches in Judea. Instead, I just think it flowed naturally. And Paul's saying, hey, you, you guys look just like the churches in Judea that I recently visited. And that's the way it should be because our aim is the same. Isn't that true? Isn't it true of churches everywhere around the world? Our aim is the same, to glorify God, to honor God, to please God, to to love God and to love others. That's the aim of every true church around the world. That's the aim of every true Christian around the world. And people observing from the outside should be able to look at us and say, wow, they come from different cultures and they sing different songs and they are rich and they are poor and they have different skin color and they're different ages and they're thousands of miles apart, but they look the same. They look like Jesus. They have the same Father, they have the same Savior, they serve the same Lord, they follow the same book, and their aim and goal is the same, and it shows, I can see it. Reminds me of Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John had been arrested and then had to stand before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Verse 13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And look, they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's the way it should be for every true believer. The thought, man, this looks familiar. The thought by the Sanhedrin, man, these guys look exactly like the guy that we nailed to the cross just a few weeks ago. And while Peter and John had been preaching boldly about Christ, look, it was much more than just words because Christ emanated out of them. Christ clearly rubbed off on them and it was unmistakable. Realize means to know, to comprehend, and to perceive things as they truly are. It's clear, see? It's obvious. It was resoundingly evident. These guys have been with Jesus. And they not only preach about Jesus, but they act like Jesus. And there's no denying that they spent a great amount of time with Jesus. And again, isn't that the way it should be? Right? Second Corinthians 2.15 says... We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, we're uh, the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. In other words, and this applies to every Christian, Christ should clearly be seen in us by those around us. We should all bear the aroma of Christ. His reality in our lives should be clear to all. The fact that we love Him and spend time with Him should be evident to those around us. And note this. This should be clear in every Christian, and this should be clear in every church. They all look the same. In one sense, they all, they all smell the same. (laughs) They all bear a, a family resemblance, Christ. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were being led by Moses, Moses would go and spend time with God in the tabernacle. And when Moses would come out, his face would be glowing as he reflected back the Shekinah glory of God. And for us, even though it won't be a literal glow on our faces like it was with Moses, people should indeed see the glow of Christ on us. That guy spends much time with Jesus. I can tell. That woman clearly loves Jesus. You can see it all over her. That person is a Christian. You can't help but notice it. And that's the way that it should be for all of God's children and for all churches around the world who worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. In Myanmar, guess what? Probably the same in Cameroon and Taiwan. In Myanmar, Yangon Bible Church looks very similar to Faith Community Church. And the Christians in that church look very similar to all of us who are here this morning. Oh yeah, yeah, we look different on the outside, absolutely. We speak a different language, we sing different songs, and their building looks different than our building. But their aim is clear, and their love is clear. They preach the Word of God just like we do. They love Christ just like we do. They're battling the same sins that we are battling, and they're eager to pray more and to read God's Word more, just like we are and they want to glorify God just like we want to glorify God and they want to love God and others just like we do it's all very, very similar same God, same Lord same book, same aim, same goal Christ, Christ, Christ all for Christ do people see the family resemblance in you, in us? Paul gets more specific for us when he says at the end of verse 14 these words For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Look, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. So third, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy thank God for the Thessalonian Christians because they suffered the same things from their own countrymen. So here Paul gets specific about what the Thessalonians were mimicking in the Judean churches. What? Suffering. See, the saints in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews, and the saints in Thessalonica suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. But if you remember, even the Gentile persecution was encouraged by the Jewish unbelievers. Remember that? Acts 17. The missionaries preached, the souls got saved, a mob attack, and the persecution clearly has continued. The mob attack continues on even now in Thessalonica. Now look... Being a Christian at that time wasn't for the faint of heart because when the Thessalonians accepted Jesus as Lord the implication was that they then rejected the claims as Caesar as Lord so they were perceived as threats to the established social order and government and now persecution is their reality because of Christ here Paul saying this looks just like the churches in Judea See, Paul knew all about the persecution that the original believers had suffered in Judea starting there in Jerusalem. Why? Because Paul himself had been the chief persecutor of Christians. Seeking them out, dragging them off to prison, stoning Stephen and so on. And so the fires of persecution against the church were ignited by the unbelieving Jews in Judea. Paul being one of them before he was saved. And the book of Acts makes it clear that the unbelieving Jews kept those fires burning even in the Gentile world. And it's continuing on now in Thessalonica from the Gentiles. But regardless of where it's coming from, Jewish unbelievers or Gentile unbelievers, it was a reality for these Thessalonian believers. One noted, for a Jew to become a Christian in the first century was nearly always costly. It often cost him his friends, family, synagogue privileges, job, social status, and often respect. It also cost him the ceremonies, rituals, and traditions which the Jewish people held so dear, including some that had been instituted by God for a certain time. When those Old Testament faithful decided for God, it was everything for him because they had a right view of who God was. Faith believes and obeys God because faith knows that God cannot lie, cannot make a mistake, cannot do wrong, cannot be defeated, cannot be surpassed. A God like this can be trusted. In fact, with a God like this, it doesn't make any sense but to do anything else but to trust Him and to obey Him. And that's absolutely right. And just as it was hard for a Jew to become a Christian, it was also hard for a Gentile, a non-Jew, to become a Christian. Why? Because that meant leaving your idol-worshiping life to serve the Lord God Almighty alone, which always, always has consequences. Losing family, losing friends, losing status, mockery, and yes, persecution. And these Thessalonian Christians were certainly facing persecution in some serious forms. Is it worth it? I mean, is it really worth it? It was to them. It was to the Christians in Judea. One note of these Christians were found most strong when thought to be most weak, and they didn't shrink from the mockings of men because they looked for heavenly rewards. They, on whom the beauty of eternal light was shining, didn't dread the darkness of the dungeon. Fed to the full by fasting, they didn't seek to be diverted by pleasure." Refreshed by the hope of eternal grace, the burning heat of summer did not parch them, nor did the cold of icy regions break their spirit. For the warm breath of devotion invigorated them. They didn't fear the bonds of men because Jesus had set them free. They didn't desire to be rescued from death because they looked forward to being raised to life by Christ. And so, because Christ saved them, and because Christ was all to them, And because they, they loved Christ with passion and with fervor, they were willing to suffer for Him, and they did. And that should be something that marks every true Christian. Maybe you won't have to suffer for Him like they did. Or maybe you will. But because we love Him, we should be willing to suffer for Him. And for His glory, knowing that, This isn't all that there is, knowing that the best is yet to come, knowing that he's worth it, and then some. Hebrews 11 talks about some men and women of great faith who serve as examples for all of us, but the end of Hebrews 11 talks about those who, they're, they're unnamed, but he talks about those who suffered and even died for Christ, and in faith, they endured it all. Verse 35 talks about those who were tortured for the faith. And look, they weren't rescued. They were tortured and they weren't rescued and it only got worse after verse 35. See, sometimes you might need to endure torture for Christ because of your faith and the call is to endure faithfully. The word for torture means to stretch a person on an instrument of torture resembling a drum and then to beat that drum. To beat that person with clubs, usually to death, which was an incredibly horrible way to die. And here we see that there were Christians who were willing to be beaten to death rather than compromise their faith in Christ. They were willing to face torture rather than dishonor their Lord. They weren't uh, willing to sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. So they walked into being tortured, and they weren't willing to compromise their faith to get out of that torturing. They weren't willing to denounce Christ or their faith to make things a little bit easier on themselves. See, deliverance was offered to them, but at the price of turning away from the Lord. So they had a choice. Be disloyal to Christ or endure the most excruciating suffering and pain. Surrender to Christ or be tortured by devils in human form. And look, if you were disloyal to Christ, if you surrendered the, the truth, you could then be free from all this horrible, wretched, painful torturing. But look, they said, no, give me the torture. He died for me, I will remain true and loyal to him. So they esteemed the eternal interest of their soul and the Lord himself over the present comfort of their own physical bodies. Torture for him. Their view's the right view though, right? Come on. Right? They got it. They, they got it. They they understood. Love for Christ, that's the key. Love for Christ caused them to put Christ above all else, even to their own comfort, even to their own lives. They got it. I pray we get it today. Like those in Hebrews got it, like the Judean Christians got it, and like the Thessalonian Christians got it, I pray we get it. Christ is worth it. He is always worth it. Worth it. Please note that these Christians mentioned here at the end of Hebrews were no better than we are. I mean, they were just, what I mean, they're just people like us. People like us. But in faith and in love, they trusted Christ with their lives and they trusted Christ with their circumstances. Can't you do the same? Yeah, He will care for you in your hour of need. I, 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 I believe that's very clear. He will give you strength to endure. Yes, He will, but you have to get it. You have to see Him clearly. You have to know that He's worth it and that He's always worth it. What else matters but Him? Come on, what else matters but Him? Nothing, nothing. Nothing. Doesn't love then compel you to remain true to Him who died on a cross in your place? Hey, what do you esteem more highly, your body or your soul? The faithful Christian knows what's most valuable in the little daily things of life, day in and day out, and also when the torture comes. So these faithful souls in Hebrews stayed true to God, even though it meant worse pain and worse torture, but they still stayed faithful. Jesus is Lord as the torturing got worse. Jesus is Lord as the beatings grew more intense. Jesus is Lord. Hey, if you just say Jesus isn't Lord, I'll stop the pain. I will go, I'll let you go free. Jesus is Lord. And they've been in glory now for 2,000 years. And I guarantee they have no regrets, none at all. Christ is worth it. Are you willing to endure persecution for your faith? Are you willing to remain faithful to Christ and to live according to the word, even if it means being shunned, ridiculed, or wickedly injured? Are you willing to miss out on worldly pleasures in order to live boldly for Jesus and offer up your life for Him? True faith says, yes, here I stand. I can do no other. I love Him too much. That's who we are, right? Those who love Him, who are compelled by love to do what we do. I believe persecution is coming for true Christians. I believe it. I want to stand strong when it comes. And I want a church, I want a church that's full of people. Not one missing who will stand strong when the persecution comes. So, Lord help us to stand strong every day. And may love compel us to glorify Christ to the very end, whatever may come. He's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be people of conviction, to be people filled with love, intense, passionate love for you, because you are worthy because of who you are and because of what you've done. So, Lord, um, fill us up. Help, Help us to see clearly and help us to learn, help us to cherish the book because we cherish you help us to not be mere words and just say we love you but we don't ever read the book that tells us about you help us to pick it up and read it because we love you and may that strengthen us for what may come it may not but what may come help us to be ready help us to stand strong and help us every day to honor you with our fading lives May we encourage one another. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.